Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Tea Talks with Kuro, where you get to listen to some pretty good book reviews while also learning more about one of the most famous drinks in the world, tea. I'm your host, Ex Kuro, and today we'll be looking at one of my all-time favourite books as of right now, Olivia Blake's The Atlas Six. Fair warning, if intellectually stimulating conversations about physics and life tied together with witty banter that can be borderline sardonic is something that appeals to you, then this is definitely a must-read. Now, in my opinion, this book would definitely pair well with Earl Grey, a tea that I think gives that old-school English scholar vibe. Think Victorian-era London. It's a bit it's a bit foggy from the rain, and you're curled up at a window seat with a steaming cup of Earl Grey tea in front of you while you fall into a really good book. Anyway, away from all those lovely daydreams, here's a couple things you probably didn't know about Earl Grey tea. So if you thought the name sounded funny, I did too at first, and that's because it's actually named after a person, Charles Grey to be exact, the second of his name. So he was the second Earl Grey, and he was also a British Prime Minister at some point. There are two ways to flavour Earl Grey tea, either bergamot essential oil and extracts are sprayed onto these tea leaves to infuse flavour, or dried bergamot orange rinds are added with the dried leaves for infusion in water and between the two the oils tend to leave a stronger citrus flavor i actually didn't know how the stew was made so that was pretty um cool to research and find out and last but not least earl grey is good for oral health boosting the immune system and it's also good as a detox so this tea has some pretty great health benefits should you decide to try it now, because of how intricate this book is, I thought the synopsis was a good prelude to the amazing literature that is The Atlas Six. So let's get started. The Alexandrian society, caretakers of lost knowledge from the greatest civilizations of antiquity, are the foremost secret society of magical academicians in the world. Those who earn a place among the Alexandrians will secure a life of wealth, power and prestige beyond their wildest dreams, and each decade, only the six most uniquely talented magicians are selected to be considered for initiation. Enter the last round of six, Libby Rhodes and Nico de Varuna, unwilling halves of an unfathomable, fathomable whole, who exert uncanny control over every element of physicality. Raina Mori, a naturalist who can intuit the language of life itself. Parisa Kamali, a telepath who can traverse the depths of the subconscious, navigating worlds inside the human mind. Kalam Nova, an empath easily mistaken for a manipulative illusionist who can influence the intimate workings of a person's inner self. Finally, there's Tristan Kane who can see true illusions to a new structure of reality, an ability so rare that neither he nor his peers can fully grasp its implications. When the candidates are recruited by the mysterious Atlas Blakely, they are told they will have one year to qualify for initiation, during which time they will be permitted preliminary access to the society's archives and judged based on their contributions to various subjects of impossibility. Time and space, luck and thought, life and death, five, they are told, will be initiated, one will be eliminated. The six potential initiates will fight to survive the next year of their lives, 
And if they can prove themselves to be the best among their rivals, most of them will. Now, that was probably a lot to take in. I know the first time I read it, I definitely had to take a minute or two to just sit back, breathe, and let that kind of plot sink in. And then, as is normal for me, I ended up finishing the book in one sitting. But let's not get into my reading habits just yet. So let's start first at the Alexandria Library. So as some of you might be aware, the Library of Alexandria was one of the greatest stores of knowledge of the millennium. And then it was burned to the ground during a siege, if I'm not mistaken. Regardless, scholars have been debating for years that had it not burned to the ground, humanity as we know would be leaps and bounds ahead of where we are now in terms of scientific research, technology and medicine, just to name a few. And I would have to agree, especially when one puts into perspective that it took a couple hundred years to transcend from no electricity to a fully technological world. That's insane when you think about it. It's incredible. And it makes you wonder just how far we could have been had we access to that lost knowledge. So the Atlas VI plays on that what if, and the result is a stunningly complex dystopian world where science and magic are seen, heard, and acknowledged. And I'm absolutely loving it. So now you have some background on what the Alexandrian society is derived from. So let's meet these characters. As seen in the synopsis, we have first and foremost, Libby Rhodes and Nicolas Ferreira de Varuna, or Nico for short. And these two have been rivals ever since they have started attending the New York University of Magical Arts, or NYUMA for short, though it's not really short and it's still a mouthful. And it's a play on NYU, which we have in New York. So basically, Libby and Nicholas entered this university at the same time they were scouted because of their prowess for magic. Both of them have the ability to physically manipulate the elements to whatever they had desire. Case in point, Libby has very good control over things like earthquakes or manipulating physical matter. Anything with atoms, she and Nico can make whatever they had desires. They're called um, physical mediums and mediums here is a term for people with the ability to manipulate magic. So they're called physical mediums or physicists for short. And they're very competitive. They're like two sides of the same coin. What they remind me of really is, you know, Gemini. Some people, um, you could refer to Nico and Libby as like Gemini twins, except they are, their competitiveness is the foundation of their entire relationship. It's like enemies to lovers, but platonically, if that makes any sense. So they're always trying to one-up each other, but... It's both their pros and cons to that relationship because they put other they put each other down and also make each other better in a sense. And they can't stand that. Libby especially because she has a lot of insecurities and Nico loves to rile her up. So yeah, I really but I really enjoyed exploring the relationship and whatnot. And it's worth it. It really is worth it. So Libby has some dark secrets of her own, despite the fact that, you know, she's a bit insecure that Nico has this charisma about him. Meanwhile, she's this 
academic persona that could be a bit um intimidating for people to try to get to know and she can't make friends as easily as Nico or whatever so that's another insecurity in her um side of the spectrum but she also recognizes that Nico is a genius as is her and she it's simply just bantering between two of them basically and they both get the opportunity to be initi- initiated sorry into the Alexandrian society so again She's thinking, wow, I just, did this is when they're now graduating from New York University of Magical Arts. She's thinking, I had to put up with this boy for four years. I'm going to have to put up with him again. Because co- they were constantly compared for all that time um, based on academics, magical powers, personality, everything. So I think in that position, even I would get a bit annoyed. On to Nico now. He acknowledges that Libby is his equal in terms of magic and whatnot and he loves to rile her up but he's also very kind to the people that he is close to and one of those people one of his really good friends is Gideon but Gideon is not human Gideon is a hybrid of a satyr which is the little um dude from Greek mythology that usually has goat horns and the bottom half of a goat, so cloven hooves and that sort of good stuff. So Gideon is a hybrid child of a satyr and a mermaid. And because of the way that this will is structured, anything that's not anything that's not human is really um not within the limits of the law or the social system or whatnot. So technically Gideon should not exist. He should not um have access to things he wouldn't have access to things like education and shelter because of his heritage and it's only because of a lucky accident that he actually got to attend new york university of magical arts with libby and nicholas um however he also finished with um nico and libby and now he is just out in open so the university, in exchange for getting to study such a rare hybrid, such a rare um, organism, for lack of better words, because technically he's not considered quote-unquote human, in exchange for that, they agreed to, you know, house him, feed him, clothe him, that sort of thing. But now he's not a student. Technically, he doesn't exist. And, of course, hybrids have a whole other set of uh, difficulties that we'll get to, get to in just a minute. Um, next we have Raina Mori. She's a naturalist. What does that mean? It means that when she was born, the earth was attracted to her. Her very existence is like a really powerful battery. She can make any, she can make a barren land, a lush rainforest in, with just a thought. So that's, she's really powerful. And Raina hates the fact that she's a naturalist, she hates her power because from the moment she was born, it was known that she was powerful. When she was born, every pl- piece of plant life in that hospital was trying to reach her as if to, you know, as if to try to get her to give them some kind of uh, relief with her magic. So she desperately tries to escape that. She, um, and she chooses going to a school where she could study literature, classical literature, which is something she's really passionate about, as opposed to a full-ride scholarship um, to Japan's top university to study horticulture and agriculture, as most naturalists usually do. 
and so many companies and etc run her down for just because she is so powerful and she just avoids them all she wants nothing to do with her power and it's her love of literature that actually um ropes her into the initiation process for the alexandrian society because her uh so atla this um we'll get to that but basically when she uh was interviewed by atlas blakely who is another person you'll meet he is the one that um he's one of the caretakers of the alexandrian society of the library of all those lovely lovely tombs of knowledge and he visited each of these six initiates and he proposed to them in various ways that would appeal to their personality what they wanted etc um to get them to attend that meeting and one of the things he used against her was the original manuscript of Circe. And if you all know Greek mythology, you would know that Circe was a, a well-known sorceress who was on exile. I believe she was the daughter of the titan Helios, if I'm not mistaken. So in this world, all those lovely, um, all those lovely, lovely stories actually have some vein of truth. So he offers her access to these original tombs that were thought to be lost in history and Rena accepts. Then we have Tristan Kane, who thinks he's an illusionist. And that was probably one of the best plot twists of this book. Tristan has probably only Tristan is probably the most insecure person here along with Libby. He doesn't think he's any good and that's partly due to how he grew up but also due to his uh, lack of self-confidence and self-esteem. And he turns out to be pretty damn powerful. Like, it was a beautiful plot twist. So he thinks he's an illusionist. And then we have Caleb Nova. He's an empath, and he is basically able to influence somebody's emotions. If he wants you to think you're sad, you will be sad. If he wants you to think you're happy he'll be happy. If he wants you to give him the new codes to any country in the world, he can have it. That's so borderline um, mind control, basically, but it's more manipulation of emotions. And he's powerful. And he does not care if you don't like him. And Caleb is just, Caleb is just that character that's, he's, a, he, he's an asshole. Yes, he is. But you can't help but, you know, acknowledge his charisma and last but not least we have parisa kamatli parisa is also an asshole she also doesn't care and you'll start you'll probably start off hating her and then at the end you're gonna hate her a little less uh parisa is kind of like a mind reader basically in the literal sense she can traverse your thoughts your dreams and find out whatever she wants you have to be pretty skilled to try and block her out or even attempt to, um, you know, hinder her way if she wants to get something out of your mind because she's pretty powerful. And Atlas Blakely, one of the caretakers of the Alexandria Library, is responsible for bringing these six people together and offering them the chance of a lifetime to become initiates and eventually members of the Alexandria Society. So you know that whole um, fiasco with the Illuminati being like the center of control? Yeah, the Alexandria Society is basically the Illuminati in this book. 
super powerful and I think that I really appreciate their connotation of knowledge with power. I live by that. I think that you should never stop learning and I would if I had to choose between knowledge and power hands down I'd choose knowledge because knowledge is power. But enough about my ramblings there. So besides um our, our star six and atlas our mastermind we also have dalton ellery he's the most re- recent initiate um so basically they initiate a new set of members every 10 years if i'm not mistaken and dalton was the most recent and he's actually gonna play a big part um later down in the book as well so these six come together there's a clashing of opinions or whatnot. All of them are the best of the best in the world. And it's just amazing. And before you try to... Th- if you came in... If you want to start reading this book, um, thinking of dividing them between good and evil, nice and mean, I'd say throw all those di- di- um, divisors away because... Every character here is morally grey, and I love it. All of them are simultaneously good people, even though good is not the word I'd use, but they can also be so horrible. They are all there for a purpose. All of them have something they desire, and that is primarily what Atlas preys upon when he quote-unquote interviews them and offers them the chance of a lifetime. For Libby and Nicholas, he plays on their competitive nature, he plays on the fact that they don't want anything to do with each other, but without each other, they are just one half of the same whole. He plays on Rena's love of classical literature. He plays on Tristan's inferiority clump- complex, and he kind of teases him with, you think you're an illusionist, but you're not, and kind of drags him into this. Then with Parisa, it's a no-brainer. He offers her power. And Calum, he offers him a chance to cure his boredom that he feels inevitably from being so powerful and being able to get whatever he wants. So each of these, each of these initiates are all there for their own purpose. And the book basically follows how all of them, they're basically tasked with reading um, works from different famous mediums. So anything from Shakespeare to Socrates, all of these lovely, lovely people who actually did do works. But in this book, they're famous medians and their works contain secrets of the universe, for, better, for lack of better words. So you see, and every time that somebody um, is able to, in, is able to, you know, see these works and to realize something new, another section of the Library of Alexandria is able to be accessible to them to help them further their studies. So they all have one year to progress on their quote-unquote um, study and to show the results at the end, to show that they are worthy of becoming members of this awesome society. And it's a wild ride. Obviously, there's some tension at the beginning between all of them. At one point, they all have to fight each other because the society is um, at risk and other organizations like the FBI, the CIA are all trying to get into the library and steal some of this knowledge. 
and it's just really it's really amazing some of their study um topics i guess for lack of better words include trying to study time travel which they actually do um i guess this is a spoiler not that it matters but tristan is not an illusionist but he can actually see the molecules in a space and he's able to um open pockets and kind of travel uh to the past or to the present or different variations in between and i thought that was amazing when i found that oh i was shocked i was mind blown i didn't see it coming so yeah that was one of it, one of the um things they discovered Libby and Nico were able to um understand the concepts of wormholes and actually create one and I believe Libby was able to angle to the moon for a couple of seconds and come back but that's mind blowing they used all this um all these works from all these famous mediums that came before them and were able to put concepts that they that theoretically could happen into real life examples and all of this just to show that they belong in the Alexandria society that they are the best of the best and that if they are members they would be able to contribute you know not just be there like mutuals so it's really amazing um you also learn that Rena is not just her power is not just to help the earth grow or whatever but it's also possible for her to um be a living battery, a living source of power, which would be instrumental in creating wormholes that last for a longer time. So in the case of making Libby and Nico work together with Rena, they would be able to sustain a wormhole for a good amount of time, at least until Rena runs out of juice. So she's a living human battery. And then we have one of the scenes where Caleb and Parisa go head to head with their powers, empath versus mind reader, and it's it, the tension is at an all time high. It's amazing. Then lines are crossed, lines are blurred. It's a lot of feelings and emotions, and amidst all this, boom, we have one initiate ending up disappearing and that's Libby she ends up disappearing and that's at later the end of the book and it's kind of stops at a cliffhanger and yeah that was that that really was a, it really was riveting when it ended I was like damn and the second there is a second book to this I believe it's a duology I'm not too sure but the second book the Atlas Paradox is scheduled to come up this year Am I on the edge of my seat waiting for that book to come out? Yes, I am. Um, anyway. So that's basically just some snippets of what to expect if you would like to read the Atlassics. It's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. Um, what else can I add on? Uh, Atlas and Dalton. So Atlas and Dalton kind of share history. Um, and Atlas... It's revealed later down in the book that he actually has an endgame and his endgame is kinda like, think Hitler, but not so evil, more indifferent and that's ten times worse. You'd think it's not, but it actually really is worse because his aim is to use this set of initiates to essentially remake the world and 
I just had to sit back for a minute and kind of conceptualize the fact that you could think so far ahead. So he has a plan in the works. He's using these initiates. And then he finds out he can't, you know, they can't be initiated because of the loss of one of the members. At least that's what everybody else thinks. But then they're accepted and they're wondering what's really going on. So they have no idea of the ulterior motives of Atlas. Dalton, I believe, has, Dalton has an inkling. And yeah, it's just a lot of feels and emotions. Think of like a sci-fi or thriller or mystery novel. But the stakes are ten times higher. Almost everyone's life is on the line. And you're playing with... You're not playing with good or bad or whatnot. You're playing with time. You're playing with life. You're playing with, essentially, atoms of matter that make up the world. And, yeah, I, I, I am all for it. I love it. It was amazing. I highly recommend this book. So, I think that... It was a, I think it was a wonderful read. Um, like I said, I finished it in one setting. Definitely worth it, even though it cost me a couple hours of sleep. And I think that you should definitely consider reading it, especially if you like morally gray characters. You can't help but love despite their questionable desires. Um, if you like a bit of angst, uh, a bit of uh, you know drama, it's pretty good. I would say, though, that it's very intellectually stimulating and a lot of the um, references are referenced to real works in the real world. Um, so I, that just made me love it even more. And I am definitely looking forward to the second book. I'm on the edge of my seat. I think only the very few books that I've ever, you know, actually actively wanted to read that I'd sit on the edge of my seat until the second one came out. And this is this this definitely makes it less. It it was amazing. I definitely think you everybody should read it at some point. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. I probably rambled a bit, but that's okay. So thank you for tuning in. And if you feel so obliged, give me a follow on Instagram at Talks with Kudo. You can also find this podcast on Okay, this is the list. Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, Podcast Index, and Listen Notes. And if you have a book that you'd like to review or that you would like to review with me, feel free to DM me on Instagram at he talks with Kudo. So thanks for listening and see you next time.